Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'd like to welcome you to the next episode of Exponential Wisdom with my great friend and partner, Peter Diamandis. Hey, Peter, you're more excited than I've ever seen you, and you're always excited, <laughs> so this is superlative on top of superlative as far as you're concerned. Yeah, it's amazing, amazing, amazing. I can't believe we're in 2018, just an extraordinary year, and I feel the acceleration of technology, the increase of potential. It's an amazing time to be alive, pal, and always a joy to be spending time with you. You know, this is why I call these crossovers, and I have a little diagram that I did about 30 years ago that when people learned how to talk, that was one human crossover. When they learned how to write and communicate at a distance, that was another, then printing, and then the digital that we're into right now. And these these are very unusual periods of human history, and you're lucky if you if you're alive with the right mindset when you're going through one of these periods. Yeah, because it gives you the ability to dream and create things that were unfathomable before. It's now during our lifetimes, and a lot of people realize how fast the world is changing and how much potential we have. I look at the toys, the games that our kids are playing with today, my kids are playing with, and they're creating worlds. They're creating worlds that are so elaborate and so powerful, and they're learning so much. I'm trying to understand what will it be like for them in 20 years, and it's mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to predict. I think it's impossible yeah. to really know, yeah. You know, as I've talked about before, I was born in 44, right in the middle of the most destructive war in human history. And the population of the planet then was 2.2 billion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm 73. So in my lifetime, the population has tripled. And it's much more peaceful today. You've been busy. Yeah, yeah. There's a great film out that's just started out, which is called Darkest Hour, Winston Churchill. And this is Gary Oldman. And this is the best Churchill depiction I've ever seen. But the king is asking Churchill at lunchtime, he said, what were your parents like? And Churchill said, well, my my mother was glamorous and too widely loved. And my father was like God, busy elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was thinking that we're lucky in this day and age that we can lead very, very exciting professional lives, but we can also have really fulfilling personal lives. Maybe let's talk about that in this podcast. I think it's a fascinating subject. I'm 56 now. I had my two boys, Dax and Jet, when I was 50. And it's interesting because your ability to have a, a family later and later in life is now more and more possible. In fact, one of the things I've been reporting about for women is that You know, you have the ability now to store fertilized eggs. We're also on the brink and just beginning to productize storing women's eggs pre-fertilization. We just had this past year the ability to demonstrate an artificial womb Mm -hmm. where a lamb was given birth in a, literally an artificial womb, a basic, think of a plastic Mm -hmm. bag with the appropriate nutrients coming in, artificial placenta and so forth. So we're reinventing the ability to have children So you can have children later in life, which means you can focus on your professional career early if you want. 
Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating. And you end up with parents who have more wisdom. More, absolutely, more wisdom. I think about no, the, no, and I say that very, very seriously because I'm a fifth child, and my parents were much wiser <laughs> with the fifth one than they were they were with the first four. You know, and this is reflected on in my family quite a bit. They talk about the fact that I had the benefit of all the trial and error by the time I came along, and so that was only a matter of a decade that you're talking about here, but you're talking about several decades. Well, and think about going back in history 100,000 years ago, you would have a baby when you went into puberty at age 13. Yeah. And, I mean, you're having a kid as a kid, and so how much it's changed. And and we also know from biology that the longer you're in utero and the longer you are raised by a parent, the more developed your brain gets. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of this going on right now that's changing. But the point you made earlier, which I think fascinating, is the ability to have a fulfilling family life and a fulfilling professional life. Oh. I, I remember a conversation I had with our dear friend Tony Robbins, and it was at Joe Polish's event a number of years ago. I said, Tony, how do you do balance between family life and your professional life? And he said, Peter, it's not about work-life balance. He said, that's a myth. You can't do that. It's about work-life integration. Yeah. And I found that very important wisdom. Yeah, what I love about that is that you're always developing new forms to it. You know, it's not like you establish it and then it persists over the rest of your lifetime. What you're learning in the one area is being translated into the other area. So I think about the notion that I care deeply about the work that I do, the people I mentor, the companies I've created. But when I wake up in the morning these days, especially post-Christmas time, my priority is building Legos with my kids and trying to impart some amount of wisdom to them. Though what they love to do at six years old is play. (laughs) Yeah, well, how are you as a playmate? (laughs) Uh, I think I'm pretty good. I'm supportive. I mean, my goal is, you know, and I've talked about this before, that I think my three priorities for raising kids, the three terms I use is passion, curiosity, and grit. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about this a lot for parents listening, Mm -hmm. that my job is to help the kids follow their passion, not my passion, their passion. Like, what do they care about? Right now, it's Minecraft, 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 a little bit of Pokemon and some Legos thrown in and a little more Minecraft. And then curiosity, and it's helping them remain as curious as they can and encouraging their questions and asking them to ask great questions and focusing on answering their questions and just giving them the notion that questioning is a superpower. And then finally, grit, meaning not giving up and teaching them that they should never give up. Yeah, one of the things, I did another podcast on a different topic yesterday, but I was talking about... I've always tried to keep right at the center of my life the sharp distinction between winning and losing. Interesting. You know, having clear-cut measurements that tell me that I've won and measurements that I've lost, and you use the two experiences for totally different purposes. The winning is all of a sudden something opens up to you and you can create whole new opportunities, but the losing is very important because that's where you learn. I still see the day that I was both divorced and bankrupt in 1978 as just the major learning 
crossover of my lifetime because I just decided to take 100% responsibility for both events. And that created the relationship with Babs on the personal side, and it created Strategic Coach on the professional side. And if I hadn't really just faced up to winning and losing, two losing experiences, but they're incredibly valuable experiences. And I think that the practice of rewarding children for showing up or for participating dulls their notion of winning and losing. I think that they get cut off from crucial learning. I find that fascinating. One of the practices I do every night, thanks to your coaching, is I review my three wins for the day. I don't actually write them down, but it's my last thought Mm -hmm. when I go to sleep and I meditate on those three wins. And on occasion, I'll crash with my kids in their bedroom and I will review that with them. I'll say, you know, Mm -hmm. these were my three wins for the day. When you came up to me and gave me a big hug in the morning and said, Daddy, I love you, that was a big win. And I'll ask them, what were your three big wins for the day? And I'll try and keep them to that, but that's critically important. And losing and failures and declaring something and taking responsibility, pal, such a simple concept and so powerful. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of clear defined wins and clear defined losses, I think, is also related to living in the gap. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's hard for people to do, and that's the point of it. It is hard to do, and you develop character. The grit that you talk about, I mean, that word has really emerged very big. I'm just noticing there's, you know, the topic of just being able to stick with things through hardship is really, really important. And, you know, and I go back to, you know, I still think that the 10 years that you spent, close to 10, between announcing the first X Prize and actually having the check, I think really formed a lot of who you are. Oh, absolutely. Let's talk about that a second for our our listeners, because I think that is part of exponential wisdom is this notion of grit, and I'd love your thoughts on it. For me, just to share it, there are a number of times in my life that I have been so committed to something, and it's been so damn hard, and I have failed over and over and over again, but yet I picked up and went on. And the X Prize, you know, I came up with the idea in 1994, announced it in 96. It took eight years to be one. So it was a 10-year journey. Mm-hmm. My zero-G corporation that I love that we do parabolic flights, I've flown Stephen Hawking in it and so forth. That was an 11-year journey. Planetary Resources, you know, our asteroid mining company so far has been a decade-long journey. And so ultimately, the realization is you can be lucky, and there are a lot of people who are lucky, or you can work hard. And that notion that you create your luck by not giving up. Mm -hmm. Bill Gross, CEO, chairman of Idealab, when he analyzed what was the key parameter for a company's success, was it how much money they raised, the experience of their employees, the technology, and so forth and so on. The key parameter, as you know, you and I have discussed this, is timing. Mm -hmm. Was the company around at the right time? So SpaceX everybody's amazing tribute to Elon for his intelligence and his hard work and all of that. But SpaceX was around at the right time in the late 2007, 2008, 2009, when the shuttle went down and NASA needed a new launch vehicle. And Tesla was around after the 2008 recession when the DOE was handing out large grants and they got a you know $400 million grant that enabled them to come into existence. So timing is a lot. 
And part of timing is grit, mm-hmm. not giving up, mm-hmm. right? If you stick around, it's living, to paraphrase Ray Kurzweil, it's living long enough to live forever. Yeah, and there's an important distinction there. It's not giving up, but maintaining an excited mindset about what you're doing while you're sticking with it, you know, because you can sort of hunker down and say, I'm just going to go through this and see what's happening. But that's that's a survivor's mindset. That's not a thriver's mindset. It's waking up every day and say, today's the day it's going to happen. Today's yeah. the day I'm going to succeed. It's remaining that positive focus, which again, for those of you listening who are new to Dan's work, I mean, there's so many gems that I and my team, Marissa Brasfield runs my team, mm-hmm. and we have a monthly Jedi Council meeting in which the 12 of us get together at PhD Ventures and we open and close with a positive focus because the mindset is everything. Mm-hmm. When you've got a positive mindset, you attract people who want to be around you and who will say, sure, I'll support that and make the crossover of faith to get involved in backing your crazy moonshot idea. I just have a little diagram that I brought along with me, which we will send out as a download to everybody's listening. But this is just a way of looking at the future, and it checks out mindsets. This is essentially a mindset quadrant. So if you can think of a vertical axis and a horizontal axis that makes four quadrants, and there's upper left, lower left, upper right, and lower right, And this is an interesting background because the person really earned his right to talk about this because he's a Holocaust survivor, Dutch. He wrote this book, which is called The Image of the Future, in 1973. So we're talking 40, 45 years ago. The one that I find interesting is the upper right. Things are good and getting better. And we may spend the rest of the episode talking about this. And we can make things even better. Not only am I in the fourth quadrant, but I'm in the upper right corner of the fourth quadrant regarding that. And I think that's what clicked for us right from the beginning, that we both had this upper right mindset. Things are good and getting better, but we were very committed to the making things better. Yeah. You know, you shared this with me this morning as we were prepping for the session. And this four quadrant is called the Polak game, P-O-L-A-K. That was the gentleman's last name. So the upper right, like you said, are things are are good, getting better, and my actions can make things even better. And the bottom left is a depressing, pessimistic point of view where things are getting worse and there's nothing I can do about it, right? So the question is, if you choose, I mean, part of it is mindset of choosing where you want to be. Yeah. Because you can watch the Crisis News Network and be decimated by what's going on in the world and there's nothing I can do about it and live there. And I mean, it's just like you can hide under the bed and not come out and play and give up on your life. But I think what you and I share, and I think a lot of the community that is listening to this, is we're living in the most extraordinary time in human history. And I'm more powerful than ever before with access to all of this knowledge and technology and wealth and all of these things. And I can go make the world even better. And that's the fundamental of entrepreneurship. Yeah. So entrepreneurs live in that upper right-hand corner. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, the rejoinder that comes back from people, well, you guys have it really good, you know. I mean, why shouldn't you be feeling that way? But I checked out my mindset about this on the day that I was both divorced and bankrupt. And I said, you know, I'm just not approaching things correctly here. I'm looking around me. Things are great for other people. So it's not the world that's the problem here. It's my own way of operating. 
And I think the lower left is like you're a victim. You know, there's kind of a victim mentality. And this is a choice. I don't think anybody victimizes you that didn't get a start with your own attitude towards yourself and your relationship to the world. And just for people, I mean, clearly, uh, you're not all or nothing on this graph. In other words, there are, for much of my life, I'm in the upper, upper right-hand corner, but I can find parts of my life in which I'm in other quadrants, too. Yeah. And I think it's a matter of... Name one, because I've never heard you go over this. You know, probably in different relationships where I think a relationship might be broken or I'm not able to change it and so forth. And those are things that might go back to childhood points of view. But these are places where we can change that. We can overcome that. So I just, I think it's important for people to realize that your mindset is everything. And when you're not looking at the world as full of potential and getting better and that you have the ability to make it better, then you don't try. And therefore, nothing changes. Yeah. One thing I like to talk about it is that, you know, both you and I are practicing a very fundamental psychological concept, which is called confirmation bias here. Yes. And what I mean by this is that we've chosen to look at the world in a particular place, consciously chosen to look at, and I'm looking for evidence to support that point of view. And I know there's a lot of counter evidence, but that counter evidence is not really important to me. It's only the evidence that I have that's really important. Can we talk about that? Because people say, well, how can you prove it? And I said, well, it's not proving. It's choosing what you want your eyes to see and what your ears to hear and your brain to take in. Absolutely. So there's this whole concept of these cognitive biases. And it turns out that our brain is limited in its computational power. So we can only process a certain amount of what we see and a certain amount of the information that we take in. And so we're biased. We tend to trust people who look like us or dress like us or people who are more handsome or prettier. And these are confirmation biases. We tend to give much more weight to the last thing that we heard versus the first thing that we heard. And what you just said is we have this confirmation bias. We tend to look for information that confirms our preconceived notions. So if you're a, a, a Republican or Trump supporter, you'll look for information that supports his points of views or vice versa. So yeah, I'm clear about it. I am an abundance, the world is getting better, biased individual. So I'm constantly looking for that data. And I'm sharing that with my community because I find that living in a world of abundance and positive mindset is a much better place to live. And so that's what I want to do. <laughs> well, it's easier to do your three wins at the end of the day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get the essential point here is that it's a choice. I've had experiences, you've had experiences. I've watched your video, read your biography, and I know that there were a lot of points along the way when you could have made a different choice about who you were and yeah. what the world was around you. And you choose to go in a particular direction. And whenever I hear about someone whose life is really bad and going downhill, you know, I try to get to the bottom. Well, when was the choice made on this? When 
was the choice. And the only thing that I think where someone can be left off the hook is if in the womb, your mother was a drug addict Mm -hmm. and your very brain chemistry was affected negatively when you were in the womb and you come out and you're born into an environment where there's violence all around you, there's disorder and everything else. And quite frankly, I think that there's people who are just born with a lot of things stacked against them. But for every one of those examples, you can find someone for whom that was true, and they still flip the other direction. Yeah, Tony Robbins is a perfect example of growing up in a household with a lot of negativity and a lot of issues, and he flipped a bit and became the greatest, if you would, thinker and actor in this arena of anybody I know. Yeah, our good friend Joe Polish, he tells his story very, Joe's very openly. I told Joe on any number of occasions, those of you, this is Joe Polish from Genius Network, uh, who's sort of the missing third partner here, because Mm -hmm. a lot of the beginning of Abundance 360 really started with your relationship with Joe. And him introducing the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing is that I've asked him, you know, very exhaustively, were there points where you could have gone the other direction? And he said, yeah, but he said, I had to make a decision and a choice in each of those situations. So I hold out for this thing about choice. You know, there's going to be some people who I just feel they just had too much bad going against them and they couldn't get out. But there's a lot of people who are still looking outside of themselves, ascribing that other people should be responsible for them going in the right direction. And I said, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you may want that, but it doesn't work that way. It's the victim mentality without question. And so I tell people, and I believe this, my mindset is my most critical element. It's my mindset is more important than my knowledge, my wealth, my everything. It's like if I believe that the world is great and getting better, I'm going to take actions in that direction. I'm going to be investing. I'm going to be taking risks. I'm going to be working harder. If I think that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, I'm going to hide under the covers. So how you form your mindset, how you protect your mindset is critically important. And for me, it's like, who do you have around you? Mm-hmm. Do you have people around you that are super positive, exponential, abundance-minded thinkers? Or are you with Debbie Downer all the time? Mm-hmm. And are you watching the Crisis News Network and just, mm-hmm. oh my God, the world's going to end. You become glued. Over the holidays, I was with a father and son and the father heard this really negative story, this really dark, deep story. And he started relaying it to his son. And I said, stop. Why are you going to say it? tell that story? That's a waste of time and and thought. Talk about something positive. He said, absolutely right. You know, because negative stuff is a drug. Anyway, so your mindset is so critically important. Yeah. Just to finish off the Polak uh, game here, uh, the upper left, things are good and getting better. But the lesson that people take from, we can't do anything about it. So why worry? Things are okay. And that seems to me to be a very dangerous position because these people get blindsided. We talk about looking for all the positive things that confirm our bias that the world is getting better. But I'm very, very aware, too, of negative things that are dangerous. I mean, like your story of the father telling, that's a dangerous situation. You know, you just put a spotlight on somebody, hey, you're transmitting information here that not only is useless and irrelevant, it's dangerous. Yep. 
Yep. Unless you analyze it and say, how could people have handled this situation better? I'm so clear, and I tell us to people, listen, if there's something really relevant to you and your life, and it's like there is a blazing California wildfire a few miles away from your home, yeah, you should be paying attention. And believe me, you'll have so many communication channels warning you about that. Or if you're a philanthropist and you want to send money to a hurricane-stricken people, all those things are really critically important. But to sit there and just ruminate on the negativity, we only have so much time in our lives and so much energy. And how you spend your time and energy is, is the choices you make. Well, let's go back to the beginning of abundance because you talk about the structure of the human brain. And, you know, both of us are really reflecting on the prefrontal cortex here, what we've chosen. But there is this reptilian part of our brain that is constantly on the lookout for danger. And you still have one, as far as I can tell. I'm looking at your front ways, but probably sideways. <laughs> there's not a missing space at the back of your... I still have a reptilian yeah, brain, reptilian yes. Year. So how have you made use of that? Like if you go back 20 years, go back to 94 when you first thought about that, because it's still there and it still has a powerful influence. So how are you treating it? That's a great question. I tend to treat fear and intense emotion as fuel. Tony Robbins talks about this a lot, that you you have to be connected to this passion, this energy, this fuel that will drive you to do greater and greater. But you can use fear to go and hide under the covers, or you can use fear to go and say, never again, I refuse to let this get me down and use that energy to overcome and grow. So I think I tend to use when I'm able to consciously engage my neocortex on top of the reptilian brain and say, yes, I'm scared shitless. And yes, odds are against me, but I'm going to double down and refocus and it's going to drive me. And that has actually been one of my most important tools is when things are darkest is to redouble my efforts Mm -hmm. and focus on what do I know? What can I do? And just logically attack, attack, attack. So in other words, you have two fuel mixes. You have excitement fuel and you have danger fuel. uh, Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is the term sort of entheos with God. Yeah. Sort of your inspired enthusiasm. And then you've got that reptilian fear of survival. Yeah. Both are very, you know, I talk about that three things motivate us, fear, curiosity, and greed. There's actually a fourth love. And they're all different ratios. And and that's a fun conversation for us to have in the future as well. You know, my favorite of all the thinking exercises in Strategic Coach that I've created is the impact filter. And I have a thing that after you've identified what your purpose is, the importance of what you're doing, and the ideal outcome, then I have this emotional one where I say, well, what's the worst result that could happen if I don't take action here? I'll sit there and I'll spend about three or four minutes just writing out the worst that can happen. And I find that one of the things you want to do with your fears is to tell yourself exactly what it is that you're afraid of. Because then your brain can actually do something with it. People who avoid fear or try not to think about fearful things aren't allowing their brain to actually engage with the situation that they're in. 
One of my 10X clients, I think you know him, Tim Larkin. Tim, former hand-to-hand combat instructor for the Navy SEALs for about 20 years. He's got a great new book out, which is called When Violence is the Answer. I've just given it out. I've just given it out, and he said that our society wants to convince us that you will never be in a violent situation. And he said, this doesn't make any sense because normal, everyday people do get into violent situations, and then they react to them very wrongly because they've never allowed themselves to think that they're actually going to get into a situation like that. And he says, why don't you just accept that it is possible for you as much as anyone else that you could get into a violent situation. Now, I'm going to train you so you can spot violent situations a long time before you would ever get to them. And I'd like to talk about this, not in relationship to Tim's specialty, but in relationship to the world right now, that there's dangerous situations that we can get into. And it's very helpful for us to say what the dangerous situations are so that our brains can actually start engaging to, one, avoid that situation, but to pull ourselves out of it or to create bypasses and to transform those situations. So my feeling is the unwillingness to talk about negative things. The best business people I know, when they're going into a deal, they always look at the downside. What's the downside of this deal? You read Warren Buffett. I mean, Warren Buffett has this very, very intricate way of thinking about the situation. What's the downside here? And if you're not willing to engage with the downside, you're missing a whole part of your brain. The saying is, protect the downside and the upside will take care of itself. Well, I don't entirely believe that that's true. I think if you protect the downside, then your energies are freed up to actually create the upside. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it happens automatically. And just to finish off our quadrant here, the lower right, things are getting worse. The world is going to hell, but we can act to change things for the better and avert disaster. Here's a question. You're really down on the crisis news network which is not just one outlet there's a lot of them no and i'm actually proud of some of the work that cnn does and i've got a lot of friends over there (laughs) but i use that as a moniker for all of the amygdala stimulating news channels out there yeah what purpose do the negative news channels serve i think they probably serve to help keep our democracy operating yeah as a most fundamental element of it. The problem is, and you know, it's just the wiring of our brain, good news channels fail. So we don't actually have news channels that are sitting there telling us all of the amazing things, the breakthroughs, the science, all of the successes and so forth, because we don't pay attention to it. And so the advertising model for these news channels doesn't function. So it is 10 to 1 negative to positive Mm -hmm. news on pick your favorite news channel. You know, we see a balance in keeping a democracy operational from those. Yeah. But here's my question. How much has social media actually taken over that role? Because there's this instantaneous sending out of danger signals that go through networks. I mean, the phenomenon that's happened over the last six months of sexual predators being outed. Amazing. I mean, there was one story in the New York Times that was the tipping point for this that got this whole started. But the rest of it seemed to have been social media, that it was the spreading of stories and 
everything like that. And I've never seen quite the phenomenon that's happened. This will be analyzed in the future as a phenomenon that was only possible during the social media age. Because everybody's a reporter now. Everybody is an observer. Everybody can communicate their portion of the news to a network of people who will listen to what they're saying. So I think social media, from that perspective, has got much more powerful because when the social media tips, it you know is almost unstoppable. And also the social media angles will take risks that the news media might not take. You know, the news media, regardless, is still an editorial-based system mm-hmm. where there is a person who is making the call on whether to report it or not, and they're being advised by an army of lawyers that will tell them that's too risky, you don't have enough evidence, Mm -hmm. but social media doesn't have that challenge. So there is a distinct difference between the two. So here's my question, because not entirely because of your cues on this, I've just noticed the extraordinary more negative that the news have become as social media has grown. And I'm wondering that they're just fighting for air, that the mainstream media now are desperate to stay ahead of a bypass. A bypass is occurring that's going around them. And they've become more and more extreme. I've noticed they've become much more emotional, much more extreme. I think they need to. They're fighting for their business. I mean, just to be clear, the business of The news media, Fox News, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, all of them is advertising. advertising. Capture your eyeballs, deliver your eyeballs to their advertisers. And if you're flipping the channel and going to a Twitter stream or Facebook or whatever it is for your news media, they will go out of business like many of the newspapers went out of business. Yeah. And so they're becoming much more sensationalized to get your attention. Okay, well, this is a great segue topic because we're going to talk about advertising as one of our podcasts in this series. And, you know, I started off in advertising. I was a copywriter at BBDO, big global advertising agency, back in the 70s. I read a very interesting statistic, and it happened in the middle of 2017, and that is that Google and Facebook alone are now commanding more advertising revenues than all print media in the world. Okay, so this is magazines, billboards, everything that's printed on paper. That was the heart of the advertising world before television and radio came in, and that has now been surpassed by two companies. In less than 10 years. In 10 years, yes. Yeah, Yeah. it's insane. Yeah. So let's talk about that next. This was a fun, meandering conversation, pal, I'm joyful always to spend the time with you. Yeah. So look forward to our next session. Yeah, well, I've been trained as attention deficit all my life. So any any distraction <laughs> from the main theme, of course, is very, very welcome. But, <laughs> but you can find interesting things through your distractions. Anyway, Peter, terrific. Uh, just a couple of things, and we can talk about this further on, is... Identifying the grit factor whenever you're taking a look at any new event that's happening in the world are the people who are actually introducing the new thing. Do they have grit? And I think that's an interesting topic. Yep. Or will they give up? (laughs) All right, pal. See you in our next episode. Thanks a lot, Peter. Be well.